Today's show is brought to you by mParticle. It's the only customer data platform built to address modern data challenges. For most brands today, customer interactions are spread across lots of connected devices, and that makes it tough to create optimal experiences and drive the right marketing outcomes. That's why brands like Spotify, Venmo, and Airbnb use mParticle. It lets them unify customer data into a single customer view. Then they can easily integrate that data into any marketing or analytics platform with no additional engineering time required. The result is more personalized customer experiences on websites and in apps, as well as more relevant ads across all channels and partners. Visit mparticle.com to learn about how mparticle can help your business unify the customer experience and accelerate growth. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as someone whose idea of a perfect workplace is the first 20 minutes of Wonder Woman, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. Today in the red chair is an old friend of mine, Joanne Lipman, a journalist and author who was previously just recently, editor-in-chief of USA Today and the chief content officer of Gannett, which is its owner. She has a new book out called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. What a perfect timing you have, Joanne. Welcome to Recode Deep Code. Well, thank you, Kara. It's great to be here. I know. So let's go back. I want. I like to talk about people's backgrounds before we get to what the meat of what we're going to talk about. Sure. Um, I met you at the Wall Street Journal, where you were a big wheel when I was a little tiny little wheel. Um, but you, you were always a big wheel. That is Carol. true. Let's face it. Let's right. Face let's be honest. Fact, but I was little. But you were big. So you did explain what you did at the Journal, and then you went on to Portfolio, and then you got to US. So people like to know people's yeah, backgrounds. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So I actually I started at the Wall Street Journal as an intern. Hmm. And then was hired right after college as a reporter. And then I spent 22 years there. What so did you cover, the different things? The very first thing I covered was insurance. Wow. Followed by real estate. Man. Then I started the advertising column. Mm-hmm. And then I went from there to become an editor. I was a, an editor on page one. And then I became, um, I was asked by Paul Steiger, who ran the Wall Street Journal at the time, to create a new section. And I created Weekend Journal. Right. And then Personal Journal. And then I was part of the team overseeing the creation of the Saturday paper. And during that time, I also became a deputy managing editor. Right. Um, you know I objected to the Saturday paper. So a lot of people did. But, yeah. you know, at the end it of the day... It threw me out of a focus group at the journal. Yeah. So not you, but someone did. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I would never have done that. I know. Yeah. I, have I said, don't do it. Invest in digital. Yeah. yeah. I didn't like that message. And so you left the journal and then you went to run a big, another big startup. I did. I left the journal, um, Cy Newhouse, who unfortunately recently deceased, but mm-hmm. Cy Newhouse, who owned Condé Nast, um, asked me to come over to create a business magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was too good. It was too enticing to pass up. And I really did love the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. but boy... Um, I had this amazing conversation with Cy Newhouse where he said, what's your dream magazine? And I said, I'd love a business magazine that speaks to me, which I feel the other ones don't, and that combines the great photography and storytelling and reporting of all of your Condé Nast magazines like The New Yorker and Vanity Fair, Mm -hmm. um, but 
put, trains that lens on business. Which and both had a lot of business coverage in them. They did, but mm -hmm. not solely. Mm -hmm. And um, didn't what I really wanted was something that connected the dots between, because you would read in the, in the, and particularly with the advent of the internet, right? Mm -hmm. You had this 24 seven news cycle. Mm -hmm. And you would read on the one hand about the executive who's overseeing the entire renovation of Lincoln Center in, in New York City. And then in the business section, there would be a story about a hedge fund manager, but they'd be the same guy, mm -hmm. right? And I wanted to connect the dots and tell those holistic stories. And right. So we created Condé Nast Portfolio, which was great fun, had great journalists. Good magazine. Yeah, we, had, we, we just had kick-ass coverage leading up to the financial crisis, but we also launched right before the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was unfortunate timing. Yeah, it reminded yeah. me of Manhattan Inc., another great magazine. Yes. Another finance. Yes. It was supposed to Manhattan, but it was also great. Yeah, yeah. It was, was sort of the, the Manhattan Inc. of its era. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what, what did you take away from that experience? From You know, you moved from a sort of a tradition, and as you and I know, the journal was pretty traditional, um, pretty slow moving in the digital area for sure. Um, you did a lot of, you did one of some of the most creative things there. Um, but, you know, at the Journal, no good deed goes unpunished at the Wall Street Journal. Um, but, and then you moved on entrepreneurially to do this thing. How did you think of that transition? And then you went over to USA Today. Yeah. 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 So I think, you know, ever since I created the advertising column when I was 27 years old, mm -hmm. I have that entrepreneurial itch. Mm -hmm. And for many, many years, the Wall Street Journal let me scratch it. Like mm -hmm. I basically oversaw anything that was new and creative. And I had, I had wide license to, to really create new ways of engaging with readers and um, uh, reaching new audiences. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was fantastic. And it really allowed me to scratch that creative itch. And so it was very similar going to Condé Nast and creating something new. I'll tell you the big, big difference is, wow, a monthly magazine, you know, I oversaw a website as well as the monthly magazine. And so, you know, digitally, we could be as fast as we needed to be, mm -hmm. um, which became faster and faster, as we all know. But um, a monthly magazine and a bespoke magazine, which is what those Condé Nast magazines were at that time, you really were closing the magazine one month before it hit the newsstands, which right. meant you were assigning those stories months before. Right. So, so how could you be on point? So you have to think, so Kara, you've actually always been really good at this. You have to be... You have to be thinking ahead. You have to be mm -hmm. like looking ahead of the curve and literally like seeing sort of beyond the next story. Right. And it's a, it's a, not everybody has that skill. You definitely have it, mm -hmm. but not everybody has it. And so you really have to focus on it and you have to focus on surrounding yourself with people who have that skill. So, right. so for example, in 2008, the financial crisis, um, we had asked Michael Lewis, who was one of our writers, you know, way back in mid-year of 2008 after Bear Stearns, um, it had to be maybe June, maybe even earlier. I don't remember when it was, but it was, it before was the, bef well before the September yeah. um, meltdown. We'd asked Michael Lewis to do um, a piece on, on Wall Street's Annus Horribilis mm -hmm. uh, so that when things actually did crash, he'd been working on it for months. You know, right. he's a brilliant, brilliant writer and reporter. And he wrote a piece that we were able to push out uh, right after the crash that um, turned into, that was the basis for his book and then the film, The Big Short. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really a matter of, of being able to rally editors as well as, you know, fantastic writers like Michael Lewis to, who are people who really can see around the bend. Right. And you, how would you look at how, and we're going to get to your book in one second, but how would you look, having been at so many different giant news organizations at very high-ranking positions, how quickly they responded to digital? I want to focus on tech here because we have a lot sure. of tech listeners. 
you know, being in those jobs, how do you assess you all reacting to them? Well, I think that all legacy media was very, very slow to adapt to digital. I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think anyone could argue with that. Um, and I think you know, even now, I mean, it's it's difficult. But on the other hand, it's also difficult for digital only mm-hmm. publications, right? Absolutely. Nobody has figured out a business model. Mm-hmm. Nobody in legacy, and frankly, nobody in in the new in these new organizations either has figured out the business model for going forward. Not a great one that doesn't get disturbed all the time, right? Almost continually, or you're always having to change, essentially. Right. You're, well, you're always having to change, and then you're dealing with the frenemies of Facebook and Google, and you know the other giants. Right. And, uh, and that becomes incredibly fraught also. So you just left a massive organization. You say, hey, how do you, how do you run an organization like that anymore? It yeah. Seems- oh my gosh. It was so much fun. It mm-hmm. was so much fun. So I was brought in by um, the CEO of Gannett, Bob Dickey, mm-hmm. who had, he had just come in and he had this idea of um, taking what had been a siloed news organization. So Gannett was a right. holding company. It had right. USA Today and, then and 109 yeah. local newspapers. Though um, we did not call them papers because they were primarily digital. They had paper products, mm-hmm. but we really wanted to focus on the digital audience, right? So, uh, but anyway, it owns you know the Detroit Free Press and the Des Moines Register and the Cincinnati Enquirer and on and on. And so Bob's idea was they'd all been run as a holding company separately. So let's create the USA Today Network. So he brought me in as the company's first chief content officer mm-hmm. to say, let's create a network of all these organizations. USA Today is the flagship, but this way, instead of having a whole, you know, 110 constrained, individually constrained newsrooms, you have 110 newsrooms with well over 3,000 journalists mm-hmm. who are able to work cooperatively together. So mm-hmm. it was fan- it, oh, it was fantastic because yeah. we could take great reporting, like the Indianapolis Star broke the story about Larry Nasser, the mm-hmm. doctor who was yes, abusing the gymnasts, right? Mm-hmm. And so we were able to um, take that story, work with the Indianapolis Star, run it wide nationally in, mm-hmm. in USA Today, but then also distribute it to all of the other local properties. So right. we became essentially our own AP. AP, yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking, yeah. Yeah, so it was, yeah. it was terrific. And then if there was a big story, a big local story, a hurricane of some sort, you know, we had boots on the ground mm-hmm. and we were able to um, also send people. You know, if you have a hurricane in... Texas. Well, we had the Arizona Republic, so you could get reinforcements from Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we could do these very big, um, very ambitious um, investigative pieces. Uh, USA Today Network in its first year was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize mm-hmm. for investigative reporting for a piece about abusive teachers and mm-hmm. how they could um, get fired in one state and move to the next state and be in front of a classroom a week later. Right, right. Right? And and we were able to do that because we had this great data collection from across the country. Right. So we had a big national story, but every local market was given their local data so they could... They could so you're talking about networks. Localize. You create a network out of everything. Absolutely. But yeah. you left. You just left them. You just left I them did. because of this new book. Yep. Um, this is the first time you're sort of out of a big journalism job, essentially. It is. Um, it is. So what, what was the impetus for doing this then? So I started, that's what she said. Actually, I started it three years yeah, ago. You, we met and had lunch or something. You were talking about this. Yeah. So yes. So if I remember, what, what was, would it grow out of working at all these bars? <laughs> <laughs> so... I will tell you that... never a wheel at these places. Oh, my gosh. So the genesis of it was this, was the fact that 
um, women talk amongst ourselves mm -hmm. all the time about these issues that we face at work, which are mm -hmm. common across no matter what industry you're in, mm -hmm. right? Being marginalized, being interrupted, right. being overlooked, not being paid as well as the guy sitting next mm -hmm. to you, mm -hmm. all of these issues. And women talk amongst ourselves. But what we haven't done is talk to men about it. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who grew up professionally surrounded by men, and by the way, all my mentors were men, mm -hmm. you know, the, I, I knew a lot of really good guys. Mm -hmm. um, and I really felt like women talking to each other is half a conversation. Right. And at best gets you to half a solution. Right. But there really was an impetus. There really was sort of the aha mm -hmm. moment I had. And it was a little over three years ago. I was speaking at you USA Today at this point. Uh, so right before I joined. Okay. So I was speaking at a conference, and mm -hmm. I was on a plane to Des Moines, and I'm sitting next to this lovely businessman, mm -hmm. and he's talking about his new house and the kids and their sports teams, and it's lovely. Mm -hmm. And then he says, so why are you going to Des Moines? And I said, well, I'm going to speak at a women's leadership conference, and suddenly this lovely man, he freezes up, he gets that deer in the headlights look and he goes, sorry, I'm a man. Oh, and, and then he goes into, he launches into this whole thing about how he had just gone through diversity training at his bank oh, and how heavens. awful it was and they beat him up and it felt like you're being sent to the principal's office. And he said to me, he said, he took one message away from diversity training and that message was, it's all your fault. Yeah. And, that really stuck with me. And mm -hmm. the following day... What did you say to him when he said that? Well, you know, I, I tried to... suck it up, Susan. I, I, I tried to talk him off the ledge, but, yeah. but it really did stick with me. Yeah. Um, and the following day, I'm speaking to this hotel ballroom full of women about mm -hmm. these issues we face mm -hmm. and watching a sea of heads nodding in recognition. Mm -hmm. And I literally stopped in the middle of a sentence and I said, you know what? We already know all of this. We need men in the room to hear mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And... That prompted me to write an article that actually ran, it was in the Saturday paper of the Wall Street Journal, the mm -hmm. weekend edition, that was called Women at Work, A Guide for Men, mm -hmm. that went viral. And, uh, and then that led to, that's what she said, it led to the book. And I, I spent three years really, mm -hmm. you know, I crisscrossed the country. I talked to men in a variety of industries. I spent a long time talking to guys and coming out here to Silicon Valley, spent time with Google, with Facebook, um, right. you know, with other tech firms, in addition to a lot of other industries as well, right. to try and understand both what are the issues and what are solutions. I really wanted it to be solutions-based, right. and I wanted it to be for men, not just women. I mean, the book is for women and men, right. but it's, I say in the beginning, no man bashing. Like, right. I really want to... I, Not just we, a little we need bit to understand. Just a little. <laughs> we'll leave that Some to you, Kara. Bashing. Come <laughs> on. Um, no. But it really is to. This is an all of us problem, and yes. until we recognize it's an all of us problem, not a girl problem, mm -hmm. we're never going to fix it. All right. We're here with Joanne Lippman. She's a journalist and author who previously was editor in chief of USA Today and its chief, the chief content officer of Gannett. She worked at lots of places like uh, Wall Street Journal and Condé Nast. But she has a new book out that she got from a man on a plane, a doofus <laughs> on a plane. It's called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. When we get back, we're going to talk about some of the things that are in the book. And in our last section, we're going to talk about some of the solutions um, that she's talked about. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, and they have a question for you. What if hiring could be easier? What if it were more streamlined and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. 
With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. One more time to try it for the low, low price of free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Kara, guess who I talked to? I will tell you. I talked to Nell Scovell, famous television writer, also famous for being the co-writer for Sheryl Sandberg of Lean In. She wrote a book about her experience uh, breaking into the Boys Club of Hollywood TV writing. There is a Me Too moment in there. That's kind of funny, um, but also disturbing. Um, and, and some really, really good insight about how Hollywood works, how writing for TV works, and, and how ingrained sexism works. Uh, it's a good time to read this book. It was a great time to have this conversation. You will like it. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're here with Joanne Lippman, an old friend of mine and journalist and author whose new book is called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Okay, Joanne, what do they need to know? There's so, so much. much. Okay. <laughs> so you went around for three years interviewing lots of different people, from tech people to find everywhere. Yep. And what were you looking to do? Your goal was to teach men the things they don't know, and, and, and so they don't feel like victims and there are allies? Yeah, partly. Partly. I, what I wanted to do is understand what are the primary issues, both that women face, but also the things that perplex men about their female colleagues. Yeah. And then I wanted to find solutions right. to fix And this is things. scientific, all kinds of studies. I have so much research, right? I, so I, I both talk to lots of executives who are trying to get mm-hmm. this right. Right. And then I also like delved into the research. So This is very Sandbergian. Um, Cheryl Sandberg. I, I guess, in, you yeah. know, in a way, it's it's also like a lot of books Patty that McCord are, has one out recently. Yeah, I think of it more in the in the realm of like the power of habit, right? That that explains to you sort of the underpinnings of what's going on, sure. and then tells sure. you how do we fix this okay. sort of thing. Okay, right. So tell me some of the things you found on the way, and I do want to focus in the next section around tech because I think tech has really accelerated a lot of the problems. But. Well, tech has, is one of the biggest problem areas. So tech and finance are definitely, I looked at a variety of industries, and without question, tech is bottom of the barrel along with finance well, in terms that, of Let's, just, of, let's of, go of into the overall so, things. So, there, you know, there are, there are a variety of issues. I mean, a lot of it is unconscious bias. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of unconscious bias going on in Silicon Valley right now that I, I have some concerns about because mm-hmm. I really don't think a couple of hours in training will solve mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. issue, um, nor do I think that offloading your unconscious bias training to the HR department is, I don't think that that makes 
Um, that, right. that doesn't help. Right, we'll get to tech in a second. But Talk about the overall things so the, that you found. So some of the overall things, you know, are, are I mean, the unconscious bias piece of it is huge, right? And this and is... what's that mean? Because you know I disagree with you on unconscious okay, bias. Okay, so... I think it's, it's conscious. I think they know just what they're doing. No, no, no. I think it starts, and we'll, we'll talk about that, mm-hmm. because unconscious bias is bias that we have buried deep inside of us so deeply that we don't even know it exists, mm-hmm. right? And um, it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Um, but what's really important, what my research showed, is that it really, what this, it doesn't start in the workplace. And a mm. lot of what is in the workplace is conscious bias. But mm. what we're talking about starts way, 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 way earlier. It starts in infancy, really. So one of the pieces of research I cite is about mothers of infants. They routinely overestimate the crawling ability of yeah, their baby is, sons. Yeah, yeah, this is true. I'll talk about this. Underestimate the crawling ability of their baby daughters. Mm-hmm. Parents of two-year-olds mm-hmm. who type into Google, mm-hmm. you know, is my child a genius? Mm-hmm. They're more than twice as likely to type that in about a boy two-year-old mm-hmm. as a girl two-year-old. Huh. Um, teachers, you get into school, there was a really interesting, I think it was an Israeli study of school children where they were given a math test and then their names were taken off and then they were graded and the girls outscored the boys. Mm-hmm. Then the names were put on the math tests and this time, the boys outscored the girls. Oh, wow. So it shows you that even teachers, even that's truly, these, these are not teachers who are saying, I don't like little girls, right? <laughs> this is, it just shows you there's this unconscious bias. And you would think, you know, math, black and white, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just not the case. So by the time you get to college age, um, a female college student needs to have an A average to be seen as the equal of a male student with a B average. And by the way, even though women get now something like 60% of all undergraduate degrees, professors still call on male students more than they call on female yeah, students. Right. right? So, things we all... Right. So that know. then manifests itself as you get into the workplace. Mm-hmm. That's why you have, you know, and then we've all heard, you know, men are, are uh, men for their first jobs are something like eight times more likely to negotiate mm-hmm. for a starting salary than women. Which um, sets in place the, the pay gap. The, the pay gap from the start. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, women are told all the time, we must demand to be paid what we're worth. Mm-hmm. Frankly, my research suggests that women don't always know what mm-hmm. we were worth. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting studies that I came across that's in the book um, that uh, that I found really gobsmacking. It was about six-year-olds. They were asked to do a simple task and to set their own pay in Hershey Kisses. Mm-hmm. At six years old, the boys pay themselves more Hershey Kisses than the girls. Mm-hmm. And then they repeat this experiment with cash in middle school and high school. And at every age, the boys pay themselves more by as much as 78%. So you end up, by the time we, way before we even enter the workforce, both women and men have sort of internalized that women are worth less. That in turn affects not only pay, but also the treatment of women. Women are worth less and their contributions are worth less. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of things that women think just happens to them. And by the way, every terrible thing that I talk about in this book has pretty much happened to me, right? Mm. I'm like, (laughs) you know, but women are interrupted three times more frequently than men. Mm -hmm. The Northwestern did a study of the Supreme Court of the United States and found that the female justices were interrupted three times more frequently than the male justices. Mm. I mean, it doesn't matter how powerful you are, right? So, um, 
and it and women all know. Um, tell me if this has ever happened to you. Um, that thing where you're in a meeting and you say something, and it's crickets, and it's like nobody heard it, and then some guy repeats it. Like no, many two many minutes women. Later. I have never been in that situation because I'm like I, I you just said my you. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm very aggressive. So you are like the one out of a million women, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, that's why I asked you the question, right? Because yeah. I think that you would speak up most. This has happened to like every woman where I I even was talking to somebody who's a regular panelist on one of the cable shows. And she told me that it happens to her where she'll say something and then the host will go back to a man and Mm -hmm. attribute her the thing she just said to him. These are commonalities that women have talked about. So men do know that we think this. I mean, I think these are things men do know. Well, I think that men are not attuned to it, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to be attuned to it to do something about it. Men and women have to Mm -hmm. be attuned to it. So when you when you think of it tuned to it, because I was just talking, I was just having uh, lunch with a VC who I like very much, who I think is trying very hard at least, um, and he said he was struck by how women don't give feedback in meetings as much. And so what he tried to do was ask them questions. Although there was a, a vigorous debate in the in the partnership that maybe that was insulting to have to ask them questions, and and maybe that's not a good way to do it. But he ended up doing it anyway. Um, and he he was surprised by how much feedback they had once they were asked for feedback, and they, he forced them into feedback, essentially, you know, called on them and things like that. Um, and then he said within three months, the meetings were quantumly better because there wasn't as much interruption, there wasn't as much quietness. Um, and, you know, he was pretty proud of himself, but I was like, okay. like <laughs> Yeah, but he's right, though. I mean, he's right. That's what happens is women don't speak up. But, you know, I think a, perhaps maybe a better way would mm-hmm. would have been to tell the women beforehand. Right. Right? You don't speak a lot in meetings. I know you have a lot of ideas, right? Right. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you to speak. If I don't hear you speaking up, I'm going to ask you just... You know, you ought to know that, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, but there's also, you know, I tell the story about um, a, a very successful uh, television producer named Glenn Mazzara, mm. who um, in the writer's room, he, he executive produced The Shield and then The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. When he was doing good. The, yeah, not bad, right? Not bad. So he's telling me that, you know, when he had The Shield, it was when he first noticed, first of all, he asked talent agencies to send him women for the writer's room. He wanted mm-hmm. a diverse group. And he said, they wouldn't. Even, they kept sending him white guys, mm-hmm. right? Even when he asked for women, he thought he said the the agencies kind of thought it was just a cover your ass move, like that mm-hmm. he didn't really want women, mm-hmm. but he did. So he finally gets a few, and he realizes that they are failing. Now here's a guy who's mm-hmm. just invested in women. He wants women. He he doesn't. You know, this mm-hmm. is he wants to make good on his investment, mm-hmm. and he's trying to figure out why are these women not failing? Why are why are they not succeed. contributing? And finally, he says he finally realized it was because every time they pitched an idea, the male writers in the room would interrupt them. Mm-hmm. And he said it took him a while to figure it out. And to your point, right, that men should know this. Well, mm-hmm. he said his ear was so attuned to the male voice and the male interrupting voice that he mm-hmm. had to consciously say, oh, wait a second, this is what's happening, mm-hmm. right? Well, once he realized it, he just created a new role, no interruptions. Pretty simple, right? Mm-hmm. If you're pitching, nobody interrupts you. As he says, when you're done pitching, everybody can tear you apart. They can make you cry. I don't care. Mm-hmm. But the point is, you have to get your ideas out. And it transformed the writer's room. And mm-hmm. he's brought that that um, rule with him everywhere he's gone since. 
So it's simple, but it's really effective. But you do have to be aware of it and you have to make good on it. But you also have to understand that it will make you more successful. And mm-hmm. I know, you know, we should all want women to succeed because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that it will actually, this is why I say it's not good enough to outsource it to HR. Right, right. right. It's right. So talk about that because that's where people go. They do these train like your original guy, um, you know, he was like, I know, what did he say? I know I'm a, I'm the man or whatever. And right. Sorry, I'm a man. man. Like whatever. Um, but when the, he didn't like his training, that's where most people are aiming these things at these HR trainings. They think that fixes the problem. Right. No, totally not wrong. So first of all, standard diversity training, which mm-hmm. was developed like 30 years ago. I actually talked to a diversity trainer who said, look, when we developed it, it was it was in response to lawsuits. And he said, mm-hmm. when we developed it, it, literally we were banging white guys over the head with a two by four. Mm-hmm. And if, it, if we made them cry even better, right? That's mm-hmm. what it was intended to do. And of course it had the opposite effect because what you're trying to do is bring the guys in, not mm-hmm. alienate them further, but it just pissed them off. Mm-hmm. So, um, or they felt like they were checking a box and mm-hmm. so they were done, right? Yeah. So there was a Harvard professor who actually looked at 30 years of diversity training mm-hmm. and over 700 companies. And he found that for women, as well as for African-American men and women, for those two groups, it made things worse. Mm-hmm. It would actually be better off if you never had training at all. Okay. So this unconscious bias training is supposed to account, it's supposed to be better, right? It's supposed to be, well, okay, now there's, it's nobody's fault because it's unconscious, so it's okay, we all have it, right, mm-hmm. et cetera. The, the problem with this, the training isn't the training per se, it's the fact that it is outsourced to HR. Mm-hmm. The ownership of workplace equality has got to sit with the CEO mm-hmm. and the CFO, the chief mm-hmm. financial officer, mm-hmm. because they need to see it as a business imperative. Mm-hmm. Every piece of research tells you, and we've all heard this, every piece of research tells you that when you have more diverse groups, you are more successful, right? More female board members, you're more financially successful. More women in leadership, you're more financially successful. More women, you add women to work groups and they're more, more creative. Are different people. And different diverse people, right? Mm-hmm. So um, better at problem solving. Um, so, but the CEO and the CFO um, have to own that. And if they don't, and in many, many companies and probably most companies, they do not. They, 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 they see it as a box to be checked mm-hmm. and somebody else's job. And that's just never going to change the culture. So what are some of the things that, when she said what men need to know, so what are the th- things they need to know? Like everyone, you said everyone shakes their head in a meeting who's a woman. What, is, what are the key things that they need to know? Well, the, I think the, the key, the, the overall key, right, is awareness of what the issues are so mm-hmm. that then they can take the steps to counteract it, right? right. So like what Glenn Mazzara did with the, you know, interrupting, the, the no interruptions rule, right? That's, that's, that's a basic. Um, the unconscious bias that prevents women from getting um, promotions and raises along the way. So at every level of, of a company, women are 15% less likely to get promoted than a man. Mm-hmm. There's a really, really interesting um, computer simulation at Rice University did of a company that's 50-50 male-female at the entry level. And they program in a 1% bias against women, which is almost imperceptible. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to the top of that company, it's 65% male. So there's, there, you really just have to be highly, highly conscious of it. I, I actually want to add one thing. You referenced before diversity, not just women, mm-hmm. and that's incredibly important. And I see this, this is so important, particularly 
I've been out there talking about that's what she said. Mm -hmm. I've been doing live events pretty much every day for the last few weeks since the book came out. And there is a huge difference between um, middle-aged to older audiences, who are mm -hmm. primarily the people in leadership, and younger audiences, like the 35 and under, mm -hmm. and certainly the millennial mm -hmm. group. Um, and the younger audiences are very, very, very focused on intersectionality, mm -hmm. as the, which is this Explain idea. Explain intersectionality, because yeah. they mentioned a lot on the Oscars last Yes, time. yes. So intersectionality is the idea that um, you know, you're a woman, but you may belong to another underrepresented group. So a woman who is also black, who is also gay, like belongs to multiple underrepresented mm -hmm. groups. Mm -hmm. And and the idea of intersectionality is it actually does compound the obstacles that you face. Mm -hmm. So a uh, Hispanic gay woman is going to face more obstacles than a sure. white woman. It's called the two-three rule or something. You can only have two, not three. So, well, they, I've heard double bind, triple bind, right, but yeah. same concept. It's the same right. concept. And it is really true. I mean, I looked at, you know, we all hear that uh, women only make 80% of what a man makes. Well, actually, black women only make, I think it's 63 cents mm -hmm. of what men make. And for Hispanics, for Latina women, it's 54 cents on the dollar. So mm -hmm. there really is an extreme difference. Right. And and the younger folks are, you know, the, the, the more entry level and younger people in the workplace are way, way, way more attuned to this right. than the older folks are. So what, um, when you say, I want to talk about tech in specific when we get back and some of the solutions that you were talking about, but what do you think the, the, the biggest problem is right now, you know, the news, I mean, everything is about men and women's relation. The Oscars, I mean, the winner, yeah. Fran Frances McDormand, talked about inclusion. I don't believe she said the word inclusion writer, which is a, if you want to explain that for people, what that is, is it's a writer on your contract. Right, right. That, that says you have to have, you know, you have to have inclusiveness in, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what she was referring to. She I think that's what the she cast. Means. Does she right. mean the writers? Like, Everybody. I mean, you know. If you're a power player, you can ask for inclusion of everything. Right. But if you look at, I mean, Hollywood is the worst. I mean, a third of speaking parts are, um, for, w women get like only one third of speaking parts. Like males, men mm -hmm. get the vast majority. Um, in 2016, I think it was only 7% of directors of the top 250 yeah. Yeah, grossing films times. were yeah. female. I right. mean, it's insane. And then um, Hispanics only get 3% of speaking lines. And the Hispanic population buys 20% of all film tickets. I mean, right. it's, it's insane, right? It's like just how skewed it is. Mm -hmm. So you need that inclusion, not just among your actors, but right. but honestly, if you're an agent, you ought to be looking at what's, your, what's an actor versus an actress being paid. Um, what kind of lines are they getting? Like right. who's getting the bulk? Well, you know, it was just shown in the Michelle uh, with the Mark Wahlberg and, uh, and Michelle right. Williams. And Michelle Williams, it's right. different in pay, which I think they tried to fix, but... You know, people are talking about it now, and it was wonderful uh, uh, when Emma Stone said, four men and Greta Gerwig. Are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. It was, like, perfect that she managed to do that. When you think about all these things, this has been the topic of this time right now. Right, right. So so here's the thing. That it's all I, based originally around sexual harassment, which is... The, the right, story. and this is the thing that, that people really, really need to understand is that the focus has been on sexual harassment. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, you jumped on your book in October, and those people right. are not journalists. I mean, right. this is like three years of research, folks. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the focus on the worst of the sexual predators, right, that if we only focus on the sexual predators and the sexual harassment, we are totally missing the point. And that could be, you know, we'll waste this moment because right. 
it's really, not every woman has been sexually assaulted at work, mm -hmm. but every single woman knows what it feels like to be marginalized and right. underpaid and overlooked, Absolutely. right? Yeah, that's, and that's a, what this moment is about. I think that's what Cheryl Sandberg just said Friday on stage with me. I said, great, they have to stop sexually harassing them, and that's not really the point. We have to have opportunity. That's exactly right. Right. That's exactly okay. right. All right, we'll talk about that and more when we get back with Joanne Lipman. She's a journalist and author whose new book is called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. When we get back, we're going to talk about tech and some solutions. Today's show is brought to you by European Wax Center. They want to tell you about pink tax, an unfair tax on goods and services that are marketed to women. As a result, every year, women pay more than $1,300 more than men for the exact same things. Women's basic clothing, like white T-shirts and jeans, cost more 40% of the time. Women's personal items, like deodorants and razors, cost more 56% of the time. European Wax Center wants all women to feel that they can be confident in their own skin and confident in demanding a level playing field. Go to axthepinktax.com. That's A-X with just an A-X and not an E at the end. One more time, that's axthepinktax.com to learn more and see how you can help raise awareness about this important issue that affects all women. This show is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Their award-winning templates are the most beautiful way to present your ideas online. Create a beautiful website or online store with Squarespace's all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. They'll set you up with a unique domain and they provide award-winning 24-7 customer support. Squarespace is used by a wide range of creatives, people, and businesses, musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, and more. So make your next move with Squarespace. Use the offer code RECODE for 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's offer code RECODE for a 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. Hey, I'm just sorry. I'm unlinking all of my third-party apps from Facebook right now. <laughs> okay. I'll be right there. Every Friday, we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, what did we talk about this week, obviously. I'm going to toss it to Recode's Kurt Wagner because he's the one who spoke directly with Mark Zuckerberg earlier today, mm -hmm. uh, along with you. Kurt, yes. what did we talk about on this week's podcast? We are talking all about Facebook and all about data and privacy and the Cambridge Analytica scandal that has been dominating the headlines for the last couple days. So we're going to explain that, take some questions, and uh, hopefully try and make yeah. sense of it all for people. Yeah, he did a good job. Lots Thanks. of things going on there. Anyway, it was a really great discussion. We hope you go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're back with Joanne Lipman. She's a journalist, an old friend of mine, and she has a new book out called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Joanne, we're just mentioning Cheryl Sandberg because of the thing. She was saying exactly what you're saying is this, if it's folks is not that sexual harassment isn't important, and these have been gripping and horrible stories for people, but that it has to move. We all have to agree that people can't be sexually harassed at work or anywhere else, but that the most important part is getting opportunity, not being marginalized. Absolutely, because you can bet, and, and that's why I wrote, that's what she said, it is all about solutions. Like, let's mm -hmm. look, about, look at all these other issues, because if you have... Any organization where they're turning, they're you know turning away or, or ignoring sexual harassment, etc. You can be sure that that is also an organization that doesn't respect women in other ways. They're mm -hmm. not getting the opportunities. They're not getting the promotions. They're not getting the pay. They're not getting the respect. So let's start first with sexual harassment. Though, where is this going to go now? Where do you imagine there's been story after story, so many men, so much bad behavior? 
Well, and, and price to pay. Many of them have been drummed out of the system. Yeah, lost their jobs. Yeah. Um, so there's, I in my mind, there's two ways the Me Too movement could go. There's mm-hmm. the 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 bad situation. The way you know the way that I that we have to guard against is this idea that you hear more men saying. Oh, I'm never going to talk to another woman again. Yeah, I want to hire a woman. It. Yeah, we talked to the Cheryl whole Mike Pence thing, right? right? And that would be incredibly dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Because that would set us back by years, if mm-hmm. not decades. But I also think it's BS, right? I think any guy who's saying that, I mean, honestly, you know, you're, the vast majority of women are not looking at the guy who works next to them as a potential sec- sexual predator, mm-hmm. right? It's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we need to to get past that and really, really fight against that. It's, there's actually never been a better time to engage for men and women to engage on this topic because it's discussable. And that goes to what the best case is, right? And that's what I'm hoping with, that's what she said. The point is, let's put the issues on the table. Let's make them discussable in mixed company, mm-hmm. right? Because one of the major reasons that men don't engage is actually fear. Fear, that's what Cheryl yeah. was also saying. Yeah. They don't want to bring it up now. They don't. There, there was Catalyst actually did the survey about this and they asked executive men, what might prevent you from um, reaching out toward, you know, um, to, 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 a not, young to women? Woman. Well, actually, not even that. It was just what would be a barrier for you to, to champion workplace equality, period. Mm-hmm. So 51% of them said lack of awareness of mm-hmm. what all the issues are. Mm-hmm. But 74% of them cited fear. Mm-hmm. And part of it was fear of loss of status among other um, men, um, but a huge part of it is fear of making a mistake. Right. And you've probably been there with in mixed company and the issue of workplace equality or something similar, gender, God forbid, comes up and men just shut down. Right. And um, they look at their shoes or they wander off, they want another drink. Um, and uh, Or so, I didn't know, that's their favorite. Or, or just they don't have anything to contribute suddenly right. to the conversation. They shut down. So, and that's this fear. They're, they're afraid that they'll say the wrong thing and we will bite their heads off, mm-hmm. right? So the best possible outcome from mm-hmm. the Me Too movement would be, and from my book, which is what I'm advocating well, for. Well, first is of all, to, getting rid of the predators, the actual predators. Killing well, off of all. course, yeah. but the yeah. predators are like the tip of the iceberg of mm-hmm. it. Of yes, we need I agree. systemic societal change. Many people have been sexually harassed. Many more people have been uh, marginalized. A hundred percent. Right. Right. No question. Or had it's minor not- aggressions. Minor aggressions that are harder to. There's a systemic issue here, right. and frankly, every woman has faced it. Every woman has faced. They have like being ten minor aggressions. One in the group or two in the group have had. Many in the group have had sexually remarks said at them that are just icky. And yeah. then one or two have had really serious encounters. I, I've noticed in groups of people. Right, right. So you've got, you know, the sexual predators at the extreme, and, and that's a no-brainer. Of course, they belong in prison, right? But, right. But putting them in prison and firing them does not solve the problem because right. they are the tip of an iceberg, proverbial iceberg, of systemic issues that are right. just marbled throughout society and we just need to be aware so that we can then So how do you get people from looking at their shoes or not talking or doing the Mike Pence thing? Because I think then women don't get to go to lunches, they don't get to go to social events where a lot of this is happening. Okay, so first of all, for... for, A lot of the power trading is happening. For some of the guys, I would say it's just an excuse for guys who actually don't want to engage. Mm -hmm. But, But the best possible outcome would be that now it's discussable so we actually can have a conversation about this. 
Um, and I'll, I'll actually give you an example. This is one of my favorites was that, um, you know, that's what she said came out of an article I wrote like three years ago. So mm -hmm. when it came out, got some attention and I went on a few TV shows and talked mm -hmm. about it. And um, one of the ones that I went on, on CNBC, it was two men and a woman mm -hmm. in, on the, on the, um, uh, the anchors. And, and the men were like, had that look in their eyes, like, like, yeah. don't call on me, don't right. call on yeah. me. And it was really me and the woman who were doing the, the speaking. Um, and then you fast forward three years and mm -hmm. I went back on that, on the show to talk about it. And the men were super engaged, like, mm -hmm. and, and there was no defensiveness. Mm -hmm. There was curiosity. There was lots of back and forth discussion. It was a great conversation. And that's your best case scenario. And that's mm -hmm. what we need is to, when you put women in the room and they can talk about this freely, you need to be able to have men in the room and the women don't shut down. Mm -hmm. And that, and then, and so then you sort of have a conversation and then um, like the guys who I talked to for that's what she said, the guys who are really into this and trying to do something about it, they're totally fine talking about it. Right. And, and what about anger for women? Because sometimes I just don't want to hear it. I honestly, like, I am angry. And I think a lot of, and I have endured it less than others. And so, and I, and I get why people are angry. And I feel like they should be able to be angry at this point because they've been tamped down in that rage. And so there's something healthy and good about doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Or not, does it completely shut down? No, I think it's great to have, to be able to express yourself, period. But I also think it's important to be able to let men into our conversation. Right. If we shut them out of the conversation, we're not doing anybody any good, right? That right. doesn't help. We're not going to fix it Well, ourselves. except there is, there's an argument he made, you know, I mean, as a gay person also, is that there's always like, oh, you should forgive us immediately for all this. And Maybe not today. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's it's always asked people of color and women and like being gay. Well, you know what? We're sorry. Now let's move on. Like, I'm like, no, I think you're going to be sorry just a tiny bit longer. Like that, you know what I mean? You're, yeah, I totally sort of hear like you. You're and always, I hear that a lot. You always forgive. You always have to forgive. And some days I just don't feel like forgiving or, or, or women don't. I certainly hear a lot of women are like, you know, I'm going to stay mad. Yeah. For a whole bunch of time. I hear I'm that. I hear that also. At the end of the day, though, it's less about forgiving and more about like doing something, getting off right. our butts and doing something about it. Right. And so I don't care if you're angry or not. Right. But you got to, there's no, we're not going to fix this right. unless we but actually. But you do instantly get the victimization attitude from men. Like, no, I can't say, no, I can't do this. I mean, even my sons, I, you know, it. Well, I should be able to say what I want. I'm like, um, you always get to be. Like maybe today you sit down and shut up, like that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a quick, the, the, the people who have really been the most victimizers do, don't like having to own up to that. Right. Like they don't, they right. don't. Like even if it's, even if it was like, it was 10 bad men and 100 good men, the 100 good men have to take what, ha what the 10 bad men did. You know what I mean? Like they have to take responsibility for some of it. Maybe they don't. Yeah, well, actually, I think anybody who is, is I actually had this conversation um, recently um, with a man, one of these activist men mm -hmm. who said, yeah, all men need to take responsibility for it because those of us who weren't the perpetrators were the people who were, who were ignoring the perpetrators or who just weren't taking it seriously. Right, I'm a good guy. Right, I'm, I'm a like, good guy, so I'm okay. Someone said that in a room. Did you do anything? No, well, you're not a good guy. Yeah, you know what I if mean? you like, didn't do anything, <laughs> right, right. Right, which is just, assume, you know, I think we all have that happened in our lives. So talk a little bit about tech itself. You know, is there, you were saying it's one of the worst. I mean, to yes. be compared with finance, to be on the bottom from finance is pretty bad. It's pretty bad. But I think part of it was that, um, you know, tech started out, at, you know, with such this strong belief in it being a meritocracy. Yeah, and, not. 
And all of the research tells you that the stronger you believe that you are a meritocracy, yeah. the more biased you are. Sure are. Right? Because you feel like you don't have to do, you don't have to do anything about it because right. you're meritocratic. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, you know, code that the, the, it go well, co it's coding, it's black and white, just like math, right? With right. those math tests we were talking about. Right. So there was a really interesting piece of research done. And I don't know what code, well, yes, with code. code review. So, well, GitHub there, right. I don't know if you know the GitHub right. yeah. research, sure. right? Where they took... Um, they took the names off of the code that was submitted to GitHub. And it's mm -hmm. open source, which means the best code should win. Mm -hmm. With no names on it, women's code was accepted more frequently than men. So your conclusion would be that women are actually better coders than men. Mm -hmm. They put the names back on it, and the men's code was accepted more than the women's code. Yeah, well, code. right now at Google, there's a lawsuit around the, the code review. Code review comes up all the time. Is that if you can't get your code reviewed right, you can't excel. Right. Then you're bad. Then it's a woman's. It goes right. on and on and, and on. And in Facebook, there was also someone who cited, there was mm -hmm. somebody who crunched the numbers and said men are like 35% more likely. based on bias. Right. Code so, so, and code... And then, so you have the code review issue, which is internal to tech, mm -hmm. but then it affects every single one of us outside in the outside mm -hmm. world because you've got algorithms that are built primarily by men. Mm -hmm. And then you have bias built into your algorithms. Yeah, and we so, say crap in, crap out. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it impacts sort of everything that we do and everything that we see. Right. And so, and then the other thing is the pipeline issue, which is also a, just a crock. Okay. The pipeline, I'm sorry. The croc. pipeline is just. Thank just, you. It's <laughs> Whenever a tech woman says it on stage to me, I'm like, crock, crock. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The pipeline, it's such, I don't know what I'm allowed to say you here. You say bullshit. It is bullshit. Okay. Okay. Right. So, um, and the pipeline issue, by the way, it's not true in tech and it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up anywhere, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the pipeline issue were true, think about this. The average CEO in the United States right now is 55 years old, which means he graduated from college like 30 something years ago, mm -hmm. which is when women became 50% of all college grads. Right. So if the pipeline issue were true, 50% of all CEOs would be female right now instead right. of about five and a half percent, right? So it simply is just, it doesn't no. work. And not only that, the, there's all these excuses like, well, women want to have kids, they want to take off, they want to raise their children, they're getting married, they care about the home, blah, 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 blah. And, and um, that also is bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Harvard, I think it was, that did the, the research on its own graduates, um, 30 years of its uh, business school graduates to see sort of where they were. And there was a gap between the men and the women, regardless of whether the women chose to get married or have children. So right. single women or women who didn't have kids, yeah. there's still a gap, yeah. right? So it's- Also men are parents. And men are parents. Yeah. Good, very good point. <laughs> I remember once um, I was on a show, and uh, I, I wasn't a fan of Marissa Maris because I don't think she's a very good CEO, regardless of gender. But one point, they're like, well, how can she be CEO when she was pregnant at the time and have this baby? And I said, you know, they, there's another parent right. who doesn't work quite as much. You know what I mean? I was like, what are you talking about? And like, there are men whose wives are pregnant, and they're right. CEOs, and right. nobody complains about right, them. Right, exactly. So, but that does go to the point, by the way, the Mercer Mayer point is a, is a, a goes to the point of, first of all, female CEOs are much more likely to get the job when the company is imploding in the first place. Mm -hmm. So generally, the majority of women who are named CEO of a major company are named when it is in, in, when it's failing. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not true for male CEOs. And then there's also research shows that women 
our um, women's mistakes are noticed more and remembered longer. And by the way, our, our own industry, like we contribute to this in the media. Mm -hmm. So Rockefeller mm -hmm. um, uh, Foundation did a survey of news reports of companies that were in trouble. When they had a female CEO, 80% of news reports mm -hmm. blamed the woman. Think about Yahoo and Marissa Meyer. I when was companies. So, <laughs> well, I'm equal opportunity mean to well, men. Good for you, but you're yeah. unusual in that case yeah. because Maybe not. because only a minority of news reports blame the CEO mm -hmm. if the CEO is a man. Right. Interesting. Um, when you think about in tech right now, one of the biggest conversations we got to wrap up soon. But I want you to come to solutions at the end, like six things or five things if you want to do. Um, Silicon Valley's been rolling about the James Damore thing and what you can say at work and stuff like that. What are things like that? do to a workplace. And what do you think of that decision by Google to fire him? Because it was against their values, essentially. They finally made a values choice. Right, right. And they've been hit by lawsuits. They just were hit by a woman who said she was uh, sexually harassed, and then Asian and white guys who said they're discriminated against because they're Asian and white guys, which was interesting. Right. And and the Demore, you know, he was saying that he was being discriminated against for having different political views. Yes, right. Right, right. So, um, you know, I think the the in that case, what you what you were seeing there with his case was exactly what you were seeing with the diversity training that I was talking about earlier. Is it's white guys saying, "Well, you're beating up on me," mm -hmm. right? And so I guess he was beaten up on, but and he also made boneheaded comments about women. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I don't know. I think the answer to a lot of this stuff is you need, again, you need that sort of the culture change. And it's but not. But it has to have to be a group thing. I mean, does he have a point? Uh, let's give Jim, Jim James a moment. Um, I, I don't think you need to have group think at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. I, I do think you need to be aware of what the biases are that are built into the system. But mm -hmm. I don't think that that means you have to have group think. That people should be able to express themselves. Yeah, and people should be able to vote however they want, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and I think what the the reason that they gave, and I and I do think that there should be sort of a no bullying. Like I think there should be zero tolerance for bullying. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, that's my understanding is that's why that he was fired, mm -hmm. right? And I and and for that, I would say sure. Like I don't think we should put up with bullying of any sort. I think they felt that he couldn't work with people that, that if they knew those were his attitudes towards women. Um, I think that's, I think that I believe that's what they said. Yeah. You know, which is hard. So let's talk, let's finish up talking about solutions. What are some of the solutions you think are, are critical to companies, not just tech, but just in general, um, figuring out how to yeah. pro reach these gaps? Yeah, there's a lot of solutions, but you know, one of them has to do with, so I think we all know at this point that if you have an opening, you should have a diverse slate of candidates. But in my research, what I found is that that is simply not enough that you actually need a diverse slate of interviewers. And I think that's been a big, mm. big issue with the tech firms, right? You bring in a diverse slate of candidates, but you got a bunch of white guys mm -hmm. who all went to Stanford mm -hmm. who are doing the interviewing. I think Stanford's more the problem, but go ahead. Well, it could I'm be, but whatever it is, it's the homogeneity, homogeneity mm -hmm. of the of the interviewers, right? Yeah. And, and people naturally gravitate toward people who remind them of themselves. Yeah. So what you need is a diverse slate of interviewers. And that actually changed the way I manage myself, where um, I made sure that when we had openings, I, I, for a long, long time, I've been aware, like, you better have a diverse slate of candidates. Mm -hmm. But it made me hyper aware that if, you know, you just had the same people doing the interviewing, you really need difference of perspective. So I like would mix it up 
you know, in my organization to make sure, of, you know, different range of ethnicities, gender, sexuality, just mm -hmm. across the board, just get different perspectives, mm -hmm. right? And the same is true when deciding bonuses, because otherwise you can be really biased in the bonus piece mm -hmm. of this. Um, so I think that that makes a major difference. Taking your name off of everything seems to fit. Well, blind hiring, I have a chapter on blind hiring, mm -hmm. and that does... Ellen Pow talked about this a couple of years ago at one of our code conferences. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I talked about like symphony orchestras, which were the ones who, who pioneered this, and it actually worked. I had mm -hmm. talked about the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and, and, and I followed the course of a woman who, you know, went behind the screen and auditioned, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, um, you know, those symphonies went from almost 100% male to close to 50-50 male-female. Um, the only one, the only symphony that didn't follow that was the Vienna Philharmonic, and it, it's, it's still almost all male. They only just recently started the blind auditions. So, um, and you can do that in tech. Um, you know, at some point, uh, you have to meet the humans who you're going to work with, and at some point you do need to to, well, because I think uh, it's fit. They're always like, oh, there's fit. Well, and so these the are code words, that? right? So this is the other right. thing. The code words used against women, we know them all, right? Abrasive, aggressive, judgmental, you name that it. That was just me this morning. Yeah, okay. you and me both, right? Yeah, right. So um, we've all been called that. And it is, and it's not just us. I mean, it is, there was research that I cite where in performance reviews where um, I think it was 100% of the women were called one of those words, with mm -hmm. abrasive being the most common, and only two out of more than 100 men when they reviewed yeah. performance reviews, right? Yeah. So, um, Do you uh, know when I went back to the... I think I've told this story to you, but I went back to the journal after having a baby, and I'm not going to say, you know the person who said it, um, but said to me, and I had broken all those internet stories. You remember I was like the leading yeah. scoop breaker on internet stuff. And he said... I guess you'll need more time now. I'll never forget it. Oh, my gosh. People said stuff like that to me. Yeah. yeah. I guess you'll need more time now. And I said, for what? Why do I need more time? Why do I need more time now as before? And he was like, uh, uh, I go, it's not because I had a baby, because that would be wrong to say that. <laughs> and they were like, oh, um, uh, I go, I think you're talking about the baby, which I think is a problem that you have, and you better think hard. Yeah. It was a really interesting discussion. Well, that goes to another point that I made. In the, I have a, I have a um, cheat sheet at the end of the book with a dozen things you can do right now. Right, and okay. one, of them, one of them is don't decide for her, which mm -hmm. is what you're talking about, which right. is, which I cannot even tell you the number of times I've been in a, in a small group of leaders mm -hmm. talking about an opening and somebody will say, oh, Susan would be great for that. And somebody else will say, oh, pff, she just had a baby right. or, you know, oh, her husband has a big job. She's not going to want to relocate, right. right? There's always some reason. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I say, absolutely do not make a decision for her. Right. And one of the companies that I spoke to, they actually changed. They used to do that and they made a um, conscious decision. They used to not offer things to like new moms or mm -hmm. whatever. And uh, they made a conscious decision. We better, we're, we're going to give them the option and let them say no. And they right. said they were really surprised by how many women said yes. Yeah. Right. right. What else? So what don't think? make decisions. Um, don't be afraid of tears, which is another mm -hmm. thing that I heard from a mm -hmm. lot of guys. There's actually, um, when women cry, turns out, so I had no idea, but men are terrified of women crying in the office, hmm. which leads them to not give I honest get feedback. I not to see a woman cry in the office. I, me neither. Me it's neither. bullshit. It's me neither. Serious. But actually, science says women do cry more than men. But when they do cry, to. no, when they do cry in the office, it's because they're 
angry or frustrated. They're right. ang- but men don't see it that way. They think right. their feelings have been hurt. Right. So the other thing translating is, social you'll love stuff. this, you'll love this. So it, it turns out, so not only do the men misinterpret it, if a woman's mm-hmm. crying, it, it, a woman crying in the office is the same thing as a man screaming and yelling and getting mm-hmm. angry, right? Mm-hmm. So men don't know that. But the other thing is that when a woman cries biologically, a man, when he smells a woman's tears, it, it lowers his testosterone mm-hmm. and leads to feelings of failure. Oh so there you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, some of the other things we talk about are, um, you know, just strategies that men or women can do. So, for example, you know, what we were talking about earlier, it is literally true. The research shows us when women make up like a third or less of a room, their voices are literally less likely to be heard, mm-hmm. which is why they you say something. More than three. So, well, you need it's more than a third. third. And women don't actually get to speak. E- they don't even get equal time in a meeting unless they make up the majority. They have to make up 60 to 80% of participants between right. be- before they can speak equal time with men. But so there's a couple of ways to go about that. You know, amplification is one. This is what the Obama administration women mm-hmm. did, which is Kara, you say something and I immediately say, oh, Kara has a great point and I repeat her point to make sure that your point Mm. doesn't die on the vine or that Bob doesn't take credit for your point. Mm -hmm. Um, Brag buddies is another one that I heard from women at a consulting firm Mm -hmm. um, where women are really good at advocating. They're actually, research tells us they are better than men at advocating on behalf of others. Yeah, I bet but not effective in advocating for themselves because when they do, they they are seen as acting outside of their stereotypes. So they're seen as being brash and boastful and abrasive and all those words. Mm. But they are, uh, because they are effective at advocating for others, as these women in the consulting firm told me that they created a strategy where um, one woman tells the other her achievements, the other tells the other, you know, they swap Mm -hmm. achievements, and then each goes to the bosses and brags about the other. I see. Yeah, gets gets them noticed Mm -hmm. more. you know, one of the things I talk about is, though maybe this is less relevant in the young tech industry, though, mm-hmm. is is hire somebody your mom's age. I mean, there's... Age discrimination. Age discrimination is rampant. And mm-hmm. particularly for women who do, who have maybe taken off some time for their kids or who have dialed back, right? They, um, they're invisible and mm-hmm. they would add trillions of dollars to the economy. And, you know, there's a woman who I quote in, the, in That's What She Said, who talks about how she, you know, she came out of technology. She did everything you're supposed to do. She took refresher courses and, and, um, and you know, she says, I have more ambition. I've got more, you know, I've got the talent. I got the goods. I'm so much better than I was when I was 27 and nobody will even answer my phone calls. Right. You know, unless it's blind. I think blind is the way. The we blind, go. the blind stuff. It's works. also understanding your worth. I know that's an old <laughs> kind of canard right now. Know your worth, that kind of thing. But it's a really interesting thing. Of, I don't think a lot all women do that. But no, women, like I said, with the Hershey Kisses, women right. don't know their worth. Right. But, but so what you really need is to actually research your worth because you don't know what you're worth. Right. right? But at the same time, they tr- sometimes t- try to take your worth. I was in a conversation just recently where everyone was. Uh, Things that I had created and depend on me uh-huh. were commenting on. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm the only person that matters here. You know what I mean? And I right. said it, you know, out loud. And it was a really interesting discussion because I was like, you're all talking about, you none of you would be here without me. And it was it was an interesting moment where they were even someone as, you know, who was at the center of it wasn't the person who was making the, it was an interesting well, attempt. So there's a thing that the sociologists call that, that why women, there's, there are a certain type of men in particular who cannot deal with a woman boss. Mm-hmm. And, 
um, women are seen as illegitimate authorities. That's mm -hmm. what the phrase is, illegitimate authorities, and so not given the respect. And literally, if you put a woman and a man in the, mm -hmm. with the exact same title and the same job, the man gets more respect and has more influence than mm -hmm. the woman does. And, and so you can see that, like, th it's threaded throughout. I mean, I, look, I even did this, talk about unconscious bias. So one of the studies I cite in the book talks about how um, female physicians are more frequently introduced by their first names. Male physicians are more frequently introduced with the honorific doctor so-and-so. Mm -hmm. Research shows this. I talk about it in the very <coughs> chapter, the very chapter where I'm talking about this, um, I'm proofreading my own manuscript and I see that I am referring to a female surgeon as Andrea mm -hmm. and a male surgeon as Dr. White. Oh my God. So, you, you know, I did it myself. All right. Yeah. All right. Joanne, this is really riveting. Um, you are, are you, do you have a sequel going that would men, would women should tell, would men should tell women? We don't want to hear from them. <laughs> um, are you hopeful about this Me Too thing changing things um, for the better? I I am cautiously hopeful. We've got to keep it alive. My concern is I'm old enough to remember Anita Hill in 1991, mm -hmm. where, where we thought sexual harassment Fine. was going to be done because yeah. now it's now it's now we all know about it. It's going to mm -hmm. be over, um, and I think it's kind of frustrating and uh, that here we are more than 25 years later, and we're seeing that it's as bad as ever and and in some cases even worse yeah right so we got to stay vigilant i'm hopeful like this younger generation is much more equality minded than any we'll other see. previous generation yeah. but but the research tells us that as they get older yep men become more conservative and that they become more fixed on having um, their career matter more and their wives yep. focus more on childcare. Indeed. So hopefully we will hold on to those ideals. I have two words for you. Inclusion yeah. rider. <laughs> I'm going to get a t-shirt that says that. Inclusion rider, people. Go for it. All right. That's what Joanne. she said. <laughs> That's what she said. Anyway, thank you, Joanne. Her new book is called that's what she said, what men need to know and women need to tell them about working together. Joanne Lippman. Joanne, it was great talking to you. It was great being here. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find all our past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You're hearing no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new-collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-TECH schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash p-tech.